Good morning. Um, welcome, Tadson. Thank you for coming. Nice turnout this morning. Um, our topic this morning uh, is what the United States should do to help defend Taiwan. Uh, we have three very well-qualified people here, and I hope that the introductions that you've received when you came in has their full uh, or fuller uh, accounts of their impressive achievements, because I'm just going to read you a, a sort of a outline, a sketch. Um, I, I have a few remarks, and then I'll turn it over to our guests. Um, so the question is what we, what the United States should do to defend Taiwan. And I, I, I could end this conference right now and say um, everything necessary to succeed in maintaining Taiwan's freedoms and security. But I think we want a little bit more specificity than that. Uh, we have a distinguished group to give you their opinions on this important subject. I'm going to restrict my uh, brief opening remarks to the threat, uh, or my view of the threat, and also how the U.S. has addressed it um, so far. Since the Reagan administration, U.S. policy has sought to make China a stakeholder in the liberal international order. And what this means is that China would have a stake in such characteristics of the current system as freedom of navigation in international waters, uh, respect for international agreements it had ratified, the rule of law, um, as well as respect for other states' sovereignty, uh, to name just a few. To encourage Chinese rulers to identify their nation's own interest with that of the international order, senior level officials from both countries, China and the United States, have been meeting together um, since the Nixon administration. With U.S. support, China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. Uh, in 2016, the People's Liberation Army Navy participated for the second time in the large naval exercise that the U.S. conducts with other Pacific Rim states. The list of uh, U.S. overtures to China is a very long one. Um, no joyful music has followed these. Quite the opposite. Encapsulating China's view of its relations with other states, Beijing's foreign minister at the time, Yang Jiechi, that's the wrong pronunciation, but those of you who know, I hope will excuse me, told other Asian senior officials at a 2010 meeting in Hanoi when the subject of China's claims in the South China Sea were raised that, and this is a quote that if you haven't memorized it, you should at least know, uh, China is a big country and other countries are small countries 
And that's a fact. China's brand of exceptionalism reinforces Minister Yang's blunt assertion that might makes right. The qualification, quote, with Chinese characteristics, unquote, has become a commonplace in international lingo. The press and scholarly publications have reported on a global order with Chinese characteristics. Uh, foreign aid with Chinese characteristics, um, environmental law with Chinese characteristics, nuclear deals with Chinese characteristics. The list of accepted international practices with Chinese characteristics is long. It shows that China's exceptionalism lies not in its adherence to principle or law or accepted norms of international behavior, but rather in its deflection, its departure from these. The US policy toward China, I believe, has failed spectacularly. China's actions show that it sees us as a strategic competitor. We have chosen to see China as a large market that can be conjoled, persuaded, encouraged into joining us as a defender of international security and economic stability. U.S. policymakers hoped that the large volume of trade between China and the U.S. and the accompanying economic progress in the former would remold China the Chinese rulers, to look and think and act more like us. The evidence does not support this um, nice hope. Historical evidence, in fact, teaches the opposite lesson. Prior to World War I, Britain and Germany were major trading partners. This had no discernible effect on the enmity that grew between the two states. British leaders regarded Germany's rise as a threat, while Germany saw Britain as an obstacle to their ambitions. World War I cast a dim light on the argument that British writer and Labour MP Norman Angle made in his book, The Great Illusion, his argument was the trade between great economic powers made war pointless, futile. World War I was pointless, but trade did nothing to stop it. I hope that the next U.S. administration will understand that our fate as a great power is inseparable from America's continued role as a great power in the Pacific and that our future is both morally and strategically linked to Taiwan's. I hope that U.S. leaders will see things as President George W. Bush did when he said early in his presidency that he would do whatever it took to assist the people of Taiwan in protecting themselves. For now, an expression coined during the current U.S. administration that expression is strategic patience, governs 
Washington's policy toward China. On Beijing's sometimes longer-range strategic horizon are more artificial islands, more confrontations with neighbors in the South and East China Seas, larger and more technologically capable fleets, and a not unfounded hope that U.S. sea power will continue its slow but steady retreat. Bound by enormous trade flows, the leaders of both states are willing to let the clock keep ticking. Referring to the American Civil War, Lincoln wrote that both may be, uh, but one must be wrong. That is, in the dispute between the states. The same applies to American and Chinese leaders' view of what is, in fact, a strategic competition. Um, so enough from me. Uh, Rick Fisher is a senior fellow with the International Assessment and Strategic Center. He's previously worked with the Center for Security Policy, Jamestown Foundation, uh, China Brief, U.S. House Representatives, uh, Republican Policy Committee, uh, and the Heritage Foundation, um, as you well know. And um, he's the author of China's Military Modernization. Here you go. Um, I will introduce the other speakers, Ian Easton and then Paul Giara, when Rick um, concludes his remarks. Thank you. At a younger, more carefree, but distant point in my career, I had the distinct pleasure of working for Seth Cropsey, and it's always a pleasure to join him back here at, at Hudson, as it is to, to join uh, my, my very esteemed uh, colleagues, Ian and, and Paul, on, on this panel today. Uh, let's see, my, uh, I, I decided to stand uh, because it's, it's better to point to some things, and uh, uh, the podium, it seems, would, would block the view of the folks on, on the right side here. Uh, and it's not because I'm a conservative and biased toward the right, but uh, you know, if we can get my uh, perspective up there. Uh, what I thought I would uh, do today is basically run through quickly uh, the, the threats that Taiwan faces and, and then uh, uh, list uh, my, my prescription for what the United States should do to preserve peace on the Taiwan Strait. But before going into the threats and uh, the, the prescriptions, I think it's uh, important that we dispense with the elephant in the room and, and the donkey, too. And by that, briefly look at what our presidential campaign so far portends for American policy towards Taiwan. And my conclusion is that there's a good chance, a very good chance, that there will be a, a, a basic policy stability. If one looks at the Republican side, uh, the candidate, Donald Trump, has yet to make any specific statements about Taiwan, but uh, one of his 
advisors just just uh, uh, introduced uh, earlier this week, uh, Peter Navarro, has written some very positive uh, things about what American policy towards Taiwan should be. Taiwan uh, is a pro-U.S. ally and uh, writes that we should sell submarine technology, allow Taiwan to participate in RIMPAC, and, and pursue better regional integration between Taiwan and our, our uh, C4ISR networks in the region. To this, we must add a, a very impressive and, and strong 2016 Republican uh, Party platform. Uh, affirms the TRA, the Six Assurances, and a very clear statement that if, if uh, China violates principles uh, that the island's future must be resolved peaceful, that the, American, the United States should defend Taiwan. Uh, a, a, a very useful clarification of American intent. On the Democrat side, we've recently had uh, a very positive statement from uh, the uh, foreign policy director of the Clinton campaign. Secretary Clinton supports the current administration's policy on China and Taiwan and will continue to do so. Uh, pretty, pretty clear. And to that, we must add the traditional, long-standing, very strong support for Taiwan in our Congress. But there's a challenge. If the status quo in our relationship with Taiwan, especially our defense relationship, continues, that may suffice for the very near term, but it simply will not suffice for the medium and long term. Here's, here's what we're up against, briefly. China has not abandoned its long-standing objective of of taking over Taiwan. It is a core interest for the Communist Party. And as Taiwan persists in deepening and, and broadening its democratic culture, China's Communist Party views this democracy in Taiwan increasingly as an existential threat. And this is reflected in the burgeoning military threat that has continued to build against Taiwan over the last two decades. More recently, the PLA has reorganized. This reorganization enables the PLA, when it's all consolidated, to undertake far more rapid surprise and combined arms operations against Taiwan. China is also trying to neutralize South Korea, isolate Japan, which are part of Beijing's goals to surround Taiwan militarily, but also divide Washington from its Asian allies. A key part of this is pursuit of control over the East China Sea and the South China Sea. And the Cold War is really showing its ugly face again in the form of the real possibility that China and Russia could again come together in militarily significant ways that would enable both to pose very significant threats to American interests very quickly. The enduring threat. China wants Taiwan because it is at the nose 
of the first island chain. Taiwan blocks China's global projection. China wants Taiwan. Here is a relief map of Taiwan that I took at a Taiwanese military display last year, last August, and shows how Taiwan is near astride some of the deepest waters in the Pacific. China wants to base their SSBNs near this deep water, base other nuclear systems there. When you have Taiwan, you divide the first island chain. Taiwan, as I mentioned, is becoming more deeply in, in, uh, in, in concerned with pursuing a Taiwan identity. Taiwan's democratic culture is, is deepening. Chinese Communist Party is increasingly threatened by this. And the new theater commands are, are depicted here and show how China could very quickly mobilize forces from four of these commands to perform very quick joint operations against Taiwan. Military threats to Taiwan have grown apace and could increase dramatically in the coming decade. For example, the Pentagon says the high estimate of, of short-range ballistic missiles pointed at Taiwan is about 1,200. That's counting the current missiles, the DF-11, the DF-15. It's one missile carrier, one missile per missile carrier. The next generation SRBMs that the PLA has already developed allow for the carriage of two missiles, five missiles, or eight missiles. You do the math, and it, very clearly, if, if the old missiles are replaced by the new missiles, or the new missile carriers, on a one-for-one -one basis, the potential for the SRBM threat to grow to 4,000 to 5,000 is, is clear. Estimates in, from the region state that by 2020, the PLA could have 1,500 fourth-generation fighters. Taiwan's fighter force is probably going to remain stable at about 400. It should grow. It can be made more effective. But that's, that's probably where it's going to stay for a while. And then finally, the PLA has been working very hard to achieve the ability to actually invade Taiwan. If you look at the formal amphibious force, what's in the Navy, what's in the Air Force, the PLA could probably put about two divisions on Taiwan. But what we don't look at is the informal lift that the PLA could call upon. Hundreds, maybe thousands of river barges of the kind that were just used to build the new bases in the Spratleys. An amphibious projection that I term the largest since Inchon. Add all of that to the amphibious projection capability, and estimates uh, in Taiwan hold that today they could project 12 divisions to Taiwan, and that's only going to grow. The South China Sea and the East China Sea are very central to China's long-term strategic ambitions. 
in order to secure its SSBNs, assure the projection of its future uh, amphibious and uh, maritime power projection fleets, and to assure access to deep space, access to the moon, and space control, China needs to control the South China Sea. Here is a depiction from a Chinese source of how controlling the Spratly Island group assists China's projection of power. Uh, in the East China Sea, control of the Senkaku Dayutai puts China in a position to threaten the Sakashima Island group, the rest of Japan's Ryukyu Islands, and surround Taiwan from the north, whereas control of the Spratly bases control access to Taiwan from the south. And China and Russia's pivot against the United States is gathering steam. I believe it was at the uh, end, of, end of May, China and Russia held their first missile defense command post exercise. When you cooperate in missile defenses, you must immediately question whether they have also contemplated cooperation in missile offenses. In 1969, the United States signaled, tilted with its nuclear forces against the former Soviet Union to prevent the Soviet Union from using nuclear weapons against China as part of ongoing border conflicts at the time. I don't think the Russians have forgotten this. And the possibility, therefore, of Russia and China tilting against the United States with their combined nuclear forces, let's say, in a scenario either to intimidate or attack Taiwan, is not unrealistic. China's and Russia's military exercises are increasing in number. Putin has allowed for a new generation of, of military sales and high technology cooperation in terms of space, airliners, heavy helicopters is, is, going, is, is going forward. So what should the United States do? My list is simply at a public level. We should recognize and state, however, however appropriate, that Taiwan remains a critical political and military asset to the United States. A democratic Taiwan is proof to all ethnic Chinese that political and economic freedoms can coexist. Yes, this does undermine the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. It's probably the only real lever that the United States has to help Chinese themselves decide that they deserve a better political system than constantly maintaining the living example of a democratic Taiwan. We should also recognize and remind ourselves that Taiwan remains the capstone of the first island chain. Lose that capstone, the chain is divided. America's allies are divided. 
and china can intimidate deal and isolate them much more readily secondly we should state that china's accelerating military threats to taiwan trigger the third and fourth policy clauses of the taiwan relations act the taiwan relations act makes clear that our diplomatic relationship with china is based on peaceful resolution of its relations with taiwan this is not happening i'm not saying that we need to reverse the deal made with china back then we recognized china and derecognized taiwan but i am saying that we can do a lot more to recognize taiwan's political accomplishments and step out far more in the ways in which we help taiwan to deter attack and my list would be moving quickly to enhance taiwan's main deterrent the sale of submarine technology will help taiwan to achieve a far greater deterrent effect i would also suggest that we consider the sale of a small number of kc135 aerial tankers this would allow taiwan to mount a small operation of f16s that could at a minimum retaliate in the event of an attack against taiwan's island taiping island in the south china sea i would submit that helping taiwan to deter such a chinese attack in the south china sea is in america's interests because we do not want china to be rolling over the rest of these islands we should move quickly to help equip taiwan with new asymmetric military capabilities uh new guided artillery shells that can uh take out aircraft and ships as well as ground targets uh new small and expensive but long range cruise missiles like the uh the Raytheon Mald the warhead is is only uh measured in tens of kilograms but they can travel 900 kilometers and uh, hit a target very very accurately and precisely and they're cheap Three hundred thousand dollars for for the price of an F-16. Uh, Taiwan can buy scores of these missiles. Work quickly to expand opportunities for U.S. companies to assist Taiwanese indigenous military programs: submarines, trainer aircraft, perhaps a new fighter aircraft. Are 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 programs that appear to interest. the Tsai administration and then the united states needs to move quickly to expand its own deterrent capabilities in the asian region we need missiles the inf treaty no longer serves american interests in my opinion the united states requires medium and intermediate range missiles to help deter china we should put them on arsenal ships put the smaller ones on arsenal aircraft create arsenal submarines create a wall of missiles along the first island chain to make it impossible for china to conquer the first island chain and then we need to modernize and even expand 
our own nuclear deterrent capabilities so that we have a sufficient capability in, in the event of a Chinese-Russian nuclear tilt or uh, attempt to blackmail the United States. And I would include as well the reintroduction of tactical nuclear forces to American forces in Asia. Finally, let's consider another major arms package for Taiwan. The example of, the Bush, of, of uh, George W. Bush's uh, uh, arms sales package certainly uh, inspires, but the follow-through for that package does not. We need to come up with a package of systems, technologies that meet Taiwan's immediate demands and enhance its deterrence and follow through with that package as quickly as we can. And hopefully I haven't exceeded my, my time frame, Seth, and I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Very helpful. Um, Ian uh, is next. Ian Easton is a research fellow at the Project 2049 Institute. During the summer of uh, 2013, he was a visiting fellow at the Japan Institute for International Affairs in Tokyo. And Ian had worked before that as a China analyst at the Center for Naval Analyses. Um, from March of, uh, from 2011 to 2013, and he had, in fact, lived in Taipei uh, from 2005 to 2010. And as I mentioned before, the fuller list of his accomplishments um, is, uh, I hope, with you. Ian, please. Thanks. Well, a very good morning to you all. And a very big thank you to Seth Cropsey for the invitation to, to come back here to the Hudson Institute. It is a tremendous pleasure to be here today, especially on this panel with Rick and Paul. Now, I've been asked to say a few things about the defense and security relationship between the United States and Taiwan, and in particular to focus on the hardware aspects, the arms sales aspects. And I think when we consider arms sales to Taiwan, it's often useful to consider it on a timeline even if it's an artificial one. So if we look back 15 years into the past and we think about where we were with Taiwan in the summer of 2001, and we compare that with where we are today, we may gain a useful sense of perspective. So in 2001, Taiwan's economy was strong and Taiwan's military was very confident. The U.S. was announcing new arms sales to Taiwan on a regular basis, on average every three to six months, depending on the year. And of course, at that time, the Taiwan Strait Missile Crisis was still very fresh in everybody's mind, the, the crisis that happened in 1995 and 1996. There was no question whatsoever that the United States was living up to the letter and the spirit of the law, the Taiwan Relations Act, and also President Reagan's six assurances to Taiwan. So there was great reason for optimism. And of course, at that time, the PRC uh, economy was about $1 trillion in nominal GDP, making it the sixth largest in the world. And their military budget at that time was only about $20 billion. 
that had only 350 inaccurate ballistic missiles pointed at Taiwan. Now, if, if we fast forward to the present time and we think about where we are 15 years later, Taiwan's economy is still strong, but it's nowhere near as strong as it once was. Taiwan's military is still cautiously optimistic, but they're nowhere near as confident as they once were. There has been one U.S. arms sale announced to Taiwan in the past five years. That came last December after a four-year, three-month arms sales freeze. So you can imagine how that impacted their confidence and their morale. You look on the other side of the Taiwan Strait today, China, of course, now has the world's second-largest economy. as over $11 trillion economy, making it second in the world after the United States. If you use purchasing power parity as your metric, China's economy is even larger. China's military spending now is at least $150 billion, although everyone suspects it's much higher. So the trend that we're seeing is not a positive one. So the question then becomes, what could we do to arrest this trend, or at least to make it look a little more favorable to the interests of the United States and our ally? not only Taiwan, but our other allies in the region. And how might arms sales play a role in doing this? Well, when we think about arms sales and we think about what we should sell to Taiwan, it may be useful not only to have a timeline and that sense of perspective, but it may also be useful to think about all the, the, the details that are involved in that, all the difficult questions that get, that get asked all the time. It's a very complex issue, and it's only become more complex over time. So just to give you all a flavor of how complex this can be, I've prepared 10 questions. Now, these are not all the questions that there are, but I have 10 of them. So I would ask you to think through these in your minds as I ask them. And how you answer them to yourself will tell you a lot about what you think we should sell to Taiwan. What might be helpful? Question number one, what type of a war does Taiwan need arms sales for the most? For an invasion scenario, a blockade scenario, or something less black and white? Maybe like what we saw with the missile crisis in 1995-1996, 20 years ago. Question number two, when does Taiwan need to be the most ready to fight? In other words, when do you think China is the most likely to attack Taiwan? Soon? Like any day now? Later, maybe a year to five years into the future? Much later on, like five to 15 or 20 years into the future? Or perhaps never at all? Question number three. Do you believe that certain weapon systems are inherently offensive and escalatory in nature? Do you believe that there are others that are not? Question number four. Do you believe that Taiwanese and or American strikes on PLA bases in China are necessary? Or do you believe that a winnable war could actually be fought and limited to the waters of the Taiwan Strait? Now, another way to ask this question is to say, do you think that if Taiwan was attacked, they should then retaliate and take the fight to the enemy? 
Or should Taiwan wait, be invaded, and then try to defeat them on the beaches and in the densely populated Taipei suburbs and the Tainan suburbs and elsewhere? Question number five. Do you think the United States is going to come to Taiwan's rescue if it's attacked? And if so, at what stage in the fight? Would it be before or after zero day? How many days? How many weeks before or after? And how long would it take to get sizable, sufficient U.S. forces into the theater? Bearing in mind, of course, that the U.S. 7th Fleet in Tokyo Bay is 1,300 miles away. Bearing in mind, of course, that the Pacific Command in Hawaii is 5,050 miles away from Taipei. It's a long way to go. Question number six. Do you think Taiwan's military budget is too big, too small, or just right? The follow-on to that question is, do you imagine that you actually know, that any of us actually know what Taiwan spends on defense? It's a fair question because it's never been studied. Nobody actually knows what Taiwan spends on defense. Question number seven. Which service or branch in Taiwan is your favorite? Who do you think is the toughest? Who do you think is the best and the most important? The Army? The Navy? The Air Force? The Marines? Or maybe the Missile Command? Who should have priority when we consider arms sales? Question number eight, and it's related. Which Chinese weapon systems, in your minds, are the most menacing to Taiwan's security? Ballistic missiles? Cruise missiles or drones? Cyber weapons? Submarines? Maybe it's mines that keep you awake at night. Or helicopters? Or PLA Marines and paratroopers? Or maybe it's amphibious landing ships? Or maybe it's something else? Number nine. In your view, are Taiwan security services doing a good job catching spies and protecting secrets, and how do they compare to the counterintelligence and counterespionage services of our other allies, South Korea and Japan? Question number 10, and finally, if you were the President of the United States, who would you want your arms sale to affect, and how would you want them to be affected? Would you want it to strike fear into the hearts of Beijing and show resolve? Or would you want to convince the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party that it's no big deal? They should not cancel their next summit meeting with you. Do you care about resolve and morale on Taiwan? Do you care about what our other allies see in Tokyo and Seoul and Canberra and elsewhere? Or is your priority making Congress happy or the U.S. defense industry or the Pentagon? These, of course, are just some of the many, many questions related to Taiwan arms sales. There's so many things to consider. So I've handed out a sheet of paper that lists all of the recent arms sales in the past 10 years. If, if you have it, uh, please get that out. I should have prepared a slide. I apologize um, that I didn't. But it looks like this if you have it. So if you look at that sheet, you will see that in recent years, we have sold a lot of arms of different types to Taiwan. A lot of defensive capabilities have gone to Taiwan in the past 10 years. And the Obama administration has done a very good job of providing Taiwan 
with a lot of defensive capabilities. We're talking about some very large arms sales packages. Uh, and I think folks in the Obama administration are rightfully proud to have sold Taiwan more in terms of dollar amounts than previous administrations. But what they've also done is that they've embraced a policy whereby we freeze arms sales to Taiwan for extended periods of time, let all the platforms that we want to sell Taiwan accumulate, or bundle, as they call it, and then announce massive packages to Congress at times when it's calculated to be the least offensive to Beijing and the most favorable, therefore, to U.S. PRC relations. Well, this approach to arms sales, in my opinion, has three very, very negative effects. The first problem, of course, is that it signals to China that we care more about our relationship with them than we care about meeting our commitments to Taiwan in a regular and reliable fashion. Now, this can only validate the Chinese coercive and zero-sum approach to cross-strait relations. This can only encourage bad behavior. The second problem is that by allowing arms to accumulate and then announcing these massive multi-billion dollar packages in Taiwan, it has the effect of giving Taiwan's parliament, media, and general public sticker shock because the amounts are so huge. And the U.S. argument which says, hey, we care about you guys. We really do. Look at how many billions of dollars we're willing to sell you. Well, to people in Taiwan, when you say that, it just seems like we're doing it for profit and not as a matter of principle. It seems as if the White House is a puppet of the military-industrial complex. And we're not selling arms as a matter of, well, because we care about Taiwan's democracy as a matter of principle. We're not doing it because... We care about Taiwan's continued freedom and Taiwan's security. The third problem with this approach to arms sales is that it disrupts Taiwan's ability to manage its own defense budget. Taiwan has one-year, five-year, ten-year long-term defense budgeting, and this affects their strategy. But if they can't know in advance, and they don't know in advance, if the U.S. is going to sell them weapons or not, and at what level, and what weapons, and how many, and when, then they can't do their strategy very well. It creates uncertainty. It creates tension in our relationship, in our relationship between the Pentagon and their Ministry of National Defense. And it reduces morale in Taiwan for that reason and also because it seems like the United States is not a reliable ally. Now, the last thing that we ought to want to do is to pile on to Taiwan's already considerable strategic challenges. But that's exactly what we're doing through this approach. So what I would recommend, and it's an easy fix, I think, is to go back to the pre-2008 system. And if you have the list, you can see what that used to look like, whereby we announce arms, arms sales to Congress in a very regular fashion, and generally one platform or at the most two platforms at a time. So no one gets sticker shock. And so it's reliable and predictable. So you'd have smaller packages, much more frequently. Now, as for the weapons themselves, when we think about what we should sell Taiwan, what does Taiwan need the most? Right? Because we can't sell everything. Their treasury is not unlimited. Our ability to manufacture things is not unlimited. And we have many other allies that we have to worry about as well, although I would argue Taiwan is uh, 
faces the greatest peril. So when we think about arm sales, arm sales can have three different types of effects, arguably. You have strategic effects, you have operational level effects, and you have tactical effects. Strategic effects matter the most, of course, because it's at the strategic political military level, the level of leadership, policymakers. This is the level where wars are decided. This is the level where wars are prevented and deterred. And if you believe, as I do, that war can be prevented and ought to be prevented, and we ought to be thinking about how we can do that, then this matters. So, Chairman Xi Jinping in Beijing. This would be an example of a strategic level decision maker. And of course, President Tsai Ing-wen in Taipei. These are the two people that you want your arm sales to speak to, albeit in very different voices. These are the two people who at the end of the day are going to be making the most important decisions for years and years to come. And their decisions are going to be every bit as political as they ought to be, every bit as political as they are military. Now, at the operational level, you have a much bigger audience, but it's still very much a VIP-only show. You have the war planners on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, the top generals and admirals, and there's not many of them, that ultimately make the decisions on war plans. Now, ideally, we should be thinking about whether or not our arms sales give the PLA guys in China a huge headache. And if they give the folks at MND in Taiwan a helping hand. One level down is the tactical level. Now, the tactical level is huge. That's all of us, right? Because everybody on both sides of, of the Pacific and on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, everybody likes to look at and analyze and pick over the latest system and what its firepower is and what its range is and how fast you can reload it and all those type of things. They're neat. They're, they're very interesting to look at, and so we all do. But this level, the level that, that I'm at, and that I think most of us are at, unless there's a four-star general in the room that I didn't realize, this level is the least important. It's the least important because key decisions, the decisions that affect war and peace, are not made by people at the tactical level. They're not made by unit commanders, and they're not made by research analysts, right? So we need to be thinking about strategic arms sales, and we need to be thinking about them strategically. So how do we do that? Well, it's, it's quite easy, actually, because President Tsai Ing-wen is on record very publicly asking for four things from the U.S. New naval surface ships, new submarines, new air defense capabilities, and new cybersecurity capacity. So what does that do to our options? What should we prioritize then? Well, if you believe in strategic arms sales and not just tactical and operational level arms sales, that means that we're talking about Aegis destroyers for surface ships. Maybe other things, but I think Aegis is what Taiwan is asking for. And they've been asking for it for over 15 years. We're talking about, in terms of submarines, program management support for Taiwan's indigenous defense submarine program. Taiwan is now starting to build its own submarines, but they need U.S. technical support. They don't need it that bad because they have fine engineers. What they really need is program management support. But unfortunately, the Pentagon has limited, if not restricted altogether, any U.S. license 
for corporations to help in this regard. That's a huge problem, in my opinion. And then air defenses. This opens up a wide range of options. You could have THAAD, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Defense System, that we're uh, now sharing with South Korea. You could have new Patriot missiles. We could do new F-16 sales and future F-35 stealth fighter sales to Taiwan. These are the master keys, if you will, of air defense. This is the future of air defense. This is what matters the most. And then, of course, for cybersecurity capacity, this would include things like joint training and exercises between our cyber command and Taiwan cyber command, or Taiwan's new cyber army. So there's a lot of options that are there. But whatever we sell Taiwan, and whatever we don't sell Taiwan, I think it's important that we always are cognizant of the signals that we're sending to Beijing and to Taipei when we freeze arms sales and then bundle arms sales. I think it's also important that we do many other things with Taiwan, and we don't just fixate on arms sales, because arms sales alone will never be able to maintain the balance in the Taiwan Strait. So we need to be thinking about doing more politically, diplomatically, more with trade, more with our economies, more with our systems of education. We need to be doing things at all levels, from the political down to the security realms. China's militarism, without a doubt, is making Asia more and more dangerous. And so we need to be thinking about strategy, developing strategy, developing new approaches, and looking critically at the approaches that we've adopted so far and asking ourselves the question, if they're not working, if we're not getting what we want, if the trend line is not going the way we'd like it to go, should we try something new? I would argue we should. So with that, I will turn it back over to Seth. Thank you. Ian, thank you very much. Um, our next final speaker this morning is Paul Tiara. Uh, Paul's an old friend, as is everybody else on the panel, um, and is president of uh, Global Strategies and Transformation, which is a professional services firm and strategic planning consultancy that provides national security strategic analysis, defense concept development, military transformation expertise, um, defense industry strategic planning, and, and applied history as a planning tool. Novel idea, isn't it? Um, uh, Paul, after Paul is uh, finished with his remarks, we'll have a chance for an exchange here and uh, questions and then possibly answers. Um, Paul? Thanks, Seth. <clears throat> I'm very glad to be here. Good morning. Um, I think we have a lot in common. Like you, I came to listen to Seth and Ian and Rick. So here we are. Um, the Hudson Institute has asked me to provide first an overview analysis of U.S. policy and strategy concerning cross-strait relations and Taiwan policy and strategy concerning cross-strait relations, and second, an evaluation of both, including the good and bad aspects and recommendations for improving such policy and strategy, and I have 15 minutes to do it. So, but there's always a Q&A session. So, I realize that these are grand strategy questions having as much to do with global economics and American ambitions for a strategic partnership with China. But it is increasingly evident, at least in my mind, 
that military shortfalls on our side, and when I say our side, I mean the U.S., Taiwan, and Japan, are driving the politics in the wrong direction by encouraging the PRC in the belief that not only are we not serious about defending Taiwan, but that we are increasingly incapable of doing so. Therefore, I'd like to address the broader questions by concentrating on military issues that have developed as a result of increasingly contrary American strategic choices. And with regard to what to do, answering that question depends upon what's going on. Um, and in the words of Seth, this has been, a, in my view, um, very critical. It's been a spectacular failure underscored by an inexplicable military and political languor. So in order to answer uh, some of these questions, I want to talk about eight issues. Let me see. And these are the eight issues. There's a war plan, 5077, but not much of a strategy. The strategic U.S.-Taiwan-China triangle, as I see it. <clears throat> the triangle's politics. Time as a factor. The reality of geography as a determinant of strategy, American interests, Japan as a committed participant, and five prescriptions. So there's a war plan, but as I said, not much of a strategy in my mind. The politics of the U.S.-Taiwan triangle, U.S.-Taiwan-China triangle, have forced us into a false logic of doing as little as possible militarily. In my mind, this, review, this reveals severe political military disconnect, and any attempt at a viable strategy suffers accordingly and equally severely. The result is the awkward and contorted political stance of defending Taiwan by not angering the PRC. Its corollary is the faulty logic of easily controllable escalation. I'll talk about that a little bit more and the apparent conclusion that the defense of Taiwan against mainland China would be de minimis, easy, sort of an afterthought, a lesser included case. This, is, this is, comes in the face of the implications of escalation's temptation without deterrence. Nuclear, cyber, and space warfare with civilizational implications. So the strategic U.S.-Taiwan-China triangle. Over time, it's, we consider this to be all about Taiwan. And so the U.S. and China planning to defend or retake Taiwan. And over time, those planning cases have become bilateral, not trilateral. Two antagonists earlier in, the, in this period, after uh, in the Cold War, the two antagonists could not reach each other, and it was easy for the U.S. The U.S. could keep Taiwan and China apart when they could reach each other, and it was easy for the U.S. And then the U.S. concluded that it could deter and or defeat China, uh, and then we came to the period where now, where the expansion and redirection of planning to defend the U.S. and attack the PRC, respectively, is a bilateral enterprise between the United States and China. 
So now this is no longer just about or only about Taiwan. This is America's problem. The U.S. and China have become one another's primary planning case. Taiwan is a lesser included case, and the primary planning case is increasingly problematic. This devolution is not deterministic, but it's the result of China's intransigence, and we should not hesitate to say so. So the triangle's politics. In the US, the fix is in. Apparently, there's nothing that China can do to get us to change our view that China is, in fact, a strategic partner. Economics holds sway. No matter what, that's job number one. And as you know, American elections hinge on these kinds of issues. In the meantime, China is hardening. China is expanding its military. You saw Rick Fisher's presentation, um, and he, he could have put an awful lot more up there to convince you of China's determination to make it clear that Taiwan cannot be defended. And finally, with regard to Taiwan, I don't blame Taipei, but Taiwan is very, very ambivalent about its relationship with the United States. First, because of the recognition, of course, and other things that happened earlier in the Cold War, but also because American behavior has made it quite clear that the United States is going to do as little as possible. Time as a factor. The hardening of China has come over time, and eventually this adds up to something. Um, Taiwan's isolation has become more drastic over time. And in another sense of time, the military problem has been foreshortened. We're now in an era of the battle of the first salvo. What that means is that potentially these kinds of, the kind of conflict involved in defending Taiwan could be over very, very quickly if we are not very, very well prepared. It's what some analysts in the Pacific theater call short, sharp campaigns. So the reality of geography as a determinant of strategy. I'm going to have to step to the screen now for a minute. So this is the map I grew up with, uh, created by Jim Auer, the dean of the U.S.-Japan Alliance Management. It depicts the geostrategic reality for the Soviet Union of the Cold War in Asia. This was literally cut and pasted, and it, we used to put them on, on uh, video graphs, and it was quite something. But in any case, Jim came up with this, and you see how Japan is the cork in the Soviet Union's bottle in terms of getting out into the Pacific. So this is an updated view. If I can do this on Google Map, anybody can. The point's the same to illustrate the compelling geography of Japan in this issue. But the third version, which amounts to the same geostrategic view, shifts the perspective somewhat to include the full perspective of the PRC's broad ocean approaches. Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, Vietnam, and so on. The fourth view puts Taiwan in its most appropriate military operational perspective as a key strategic bastion. 
Taiwan, as Rick Fisher said, is the nose. This is incredibly important from a military perspective. So any American military strategy in the Asia-Pacific must take into account this, the salience of Taiwan. Um, the perspective has another virtue by clearly illustrating Taiwan's natural long-term allies and partners. And the next view puts Taiwan into perspective with regard to the PRC's maritime salient. So in broad military terms, what's happening now and what is happening for some time is that China is coming out to sea. This is what's going on. This is why we're in such a kerfluffle out in the Asia-Pacific. And you see Taiwan is right smack in the middle of it. Who holds Taiwan will hold the rest of that salient coming out into the Pacific, that operational and strategic wedge. So here's another view of Taiwan's military geography. The operational centrality of Taiwan, right smack there, the nose. And here's another, here's a view of Taiwan's political geography, right in the middle of the entire Asian political complex. And finally, here's a view of Taiwan's geography with regard to the South China Sea. Taiwan has a key position on the northern flank of any maritime operation in the South China Sea. Is it any wonder that Beijing doesn't want us to look at these maps? And so you see Taiwan up there completely flanking anything else that's going on in the South China Sea. It helps to look at maps once in a while. So American interests. The first thing is I would take uh, the humorous Will Rogers advice, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Um, don't continue to make things worse. And unfortunately, we do by, as Ian so aptly described, politicizing our military relationship uh, in, the, in the bad way um, with Taiwan. Um, it would seem to me that we should understand what I've just tried to show you on the maps, that Taiwan's role in the bilateral Sino-U.S. competition is both a geographic wedge and a political wedge. It's a political wedge because of Taiwan's role as a viable alternative to the PRC, legally, politically, and ideologically. Lest we forget, Japan is a committed participant. Japan is the pig in a bacon and eggs breakfast. Uh, Taiwan's role in the bilateral Sino-Japanese competition is central. Tokyo understands this completely and has a fairly robust but necessarily sort of sotto voce relationship with Taiwan. Um, the geography for Japan is compelling. Japanese territory and Taiwan are separated at the end of the Ryukus by 67 sea miles. That's all. Um, and Taiwan commands the, the, the flank of Japanese territorial defense. Um, there is no question in Tokyo's perspective that Taiwan is necessary for strategic and operational continuity in any military confrontation, peaceful or operational, with Beijing. And finally, five prescriptions. 
The first, I think, and I've said it before here at Hudson, is to suspend disbelief. I think it's necessary, essential, and the first thing to accept the implications of what China considers to be the case of us already being at war. This is China's conclusion, and China is waging political, legal, psychological war with us, as well as kinetic war, because 1,200 or 5,000 missiles across the Taiwan Straits is not a friendly act. So I think we have to do that first and foremost. The second American interest is, frankly, this war must never start. And the reason is because of what I referred to earlier, the implications for the end of civilization of nuclear, cyber, and space warfare. Certainly civilization as we know it. This kind of thought should be familiar to those of you who are old, cold warriors. And uh, because we understood this quite clearly when only nuclear warfare in, in this context was at issue during the Cold War. Now we've tripled down on this issue, and there is no doctrine in place for escalation control or deterrence. So what does that mean? That means that the temptation to preempt is phenomenally strong in wars of the first salvo. Next, I think we have to defend the salient that I showed you and hold the line of the first island chain. This gives a clear operational direction to American, Taiwanese, and Japanese commanders. And I think in doing so, we have to first and first, if not foremost, first, we have to defend on, excuse me, we have to concentrate on defenses first and in the short term. Because if you can't defend yourself, even a good offense is pointless. You have to be able to defend. Next, and defense is part of this, we have to develop credible deterrence and advertise them. This doesn't do any good if it's in a safe in the U.S. Strategic Command someplace and nobody knows about it because deterrence is public property. It's a public good. And the Chinese have to understand what we would do and we, you and I, American citizens, at least in this room, have to sign up for it in advance. This is the way deterrence works. So, with regard to credible deterrence, war fighting to win. Because in order to deter so you can prevent the war, you have to be prepared and capable of winning it. Escalation control as a primary objective and tool planning for disruption in all of these things, because China is very good at it and understands the power of disruptive capabilities, and building integrated strategies, doctrines, and operational plans accordingly to win, to control escalation, and to fight under disrupted circumstances. And finally, back to Taiwan, because I've tried to lay out why this is our problem, not Taiwan's problem. Alliances bring necessary mass and capability to a, a, a conflict. But 
There's no liability like an alliance liability if they're not strongly anchored. So I would recommend, number one, fortified C4 ISR, command, control, communications, computers, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Fortified C4 ISR as a linchpin of deterrence. Why? Because we're either going to hang together or hang separately, as our revolutionary forebears said. Second, I would restore Taiwan's military credibility on the Japan model. The Japan model of military credibility is, does not include power projection and strike. And I think that's probably appropriate for Taiwan. However, it's robust in every other way. The U.S.-Japan alliance is a work in progress. You've heard me talk about it before, you know I think that. But nevertheless, it's a pretty good model. Um, third, we're just starting to see the beginning of this. And I would recommend it as a, a, a general approach to reverse the cost-benefit equation imposed by China on us. It's much more difficult to defend against missiles than it is to use missiles as an offensive capability, but new defensive capabilities are coming out of organizations like the Strategic Capability Office with high-velocity projectiles, railguns, and so on that will reverse that cost curve. And finally, like the Roman senator who always ended his remarks by saying Carthage must be destroyed, I would recommend a really uh, realistic and authoritative U.S.-Taiwan net assessment in order to derive additional prescriptions. Thanks. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Paul. Uh, you need to find a Latin expression for your last short and pithy remark there. And that... From history. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, there are several questions I would like to ask, but I see that we have 15 minutes left. So let's throw the floor open here, or at least allow people on the floor to ask questions. And then, um, uh, and if there aren't, then I'll ask questions. Uh, here, second row, please. And uh, I'm sorry, when uh, you get the microphone, would you please... Tell us your name, and if there is, if you work for an organization or represent one, tell us that also. Thank you. My name is Grace Kong. I'm um, with the Institute for Korean American Studies, and my question has to do with to what extent uh, does China's policy towards Taiwan affect its policy towards North Korea? In other words, how does North Korea figure into this larger strategy? It looks, by looking at your maps, it seems as if uh, China would never accept a unified Korea that was democratic because that would encroach on their projection outward. And also in the future, if you would please say to whom your question is directed. Um, I think there's a, a, a consistency in China's approaches to both South Korea and Taiwan that is quite evident. Um, China doesn't have the kind of claim that it makes 
regarding Taiwan and South Korea, but it is quite clear that it, it, it will control the Korean Peninsula one way or the other. So I think there's, there's a, a consistency that's quite evident in Chinese policies, actions, capabilities. I, I think there's a direct relationship, and it's, also, it's historic. Mao was convinced not to invade Taiwan in 1949 because of a bribe from Stalin, a very good bribe. But the goal to take Taiwan has, has remained. And now North Korea has become a nuclear-armed proxy for China to influence the actions of the United States, Japan, and, in my opinion, for China to use to create favorable scenarios that may assist the intimidation or eventual conquest of Taiwan. Putting North Korea's nuclear ICBM on a Chinese-made tell is about as obvious as you can get that China wants North Korea to be a threat that it can use to influence the United States, Japan, South Korea, and to influence the evolution of the strategic balance in Asia. The back of the room. Hello, my name is Ryan Pickrell. I'm with the Daily Caller News Foundation. Um, President Xi Jinping has sort of made himself the, or the Communist Party, the vanguard for national security or national sovereignty through his, you know, great revival of the Chinese nation. Um, for um, Mr. Fisher, do you think the U.S. can really? with you know, the help of Taiwan, muster a deterrence that will squelch China's resolve? Like, can we muster that level of deterrence? Uh, yes, we can. But working with Taiwan to create a continuously effective deterrence that is pursued in coordination with Japan hopefully with the Philippines, and with an uh, attentive eye to not just the balance of power in, in Asia, but also the global balance of power, and how the strategic relationship between Russia and China is evolving are all components of uh, a, a, an effective strategy going forward to deter China from military adventurism Seth, can I add to that? Please. Um, I, I think it's important to think about the difference between deterrence and resolve, or the connection between the two. Um, what we've been describing are actions that might and hopefully would deter China, but that's different than diminishing their resolve. And I think what that, the implications of that conclusion, if I'm right about it, is that this is, we're in this for the long haul. I don't think the Chinese can afford to back away from this, and I don't anticipate that they will, which is why a strong deterrent posture is going to be so important. It's going to have to transcend administrations. It may have to transcend generations. Um, this, we're, as I said, we're in this for the long haul.
question for the panel, but in particular for Paul. Um, in the spirit of Herman Kahn, if, since we have nuclear escalation dominance, why wouldn't we leverage it over China? It's encouraging to me to see a young man quote Herman Kahn. Um, where is he when we need him? Um, that seems to me to be tied in with the diminishment of American strategic thinking. The earlier conclusion, I think, proved terribly wrong that we're beyond all of that and don't have to think about deterrence. And now what seem to be financially based objections to the modernization of the American strategic nuclear arsenal, but, but which are in reality ideological thrusts at the heart of American deterrence. So I think first and foremost, we have to ask, we have to kind of get back on the horse here and ride Herman Kahn because uh, he and his colleagues, Wolstetter, Marshall, and others, were right about how this has to work. It, and it's a terrifying prospect. And uh, frankly, I don't see much interest in going back to that because it's like going back into the house of horrors. Who, who, who wants to do that? I would add, I, I don't think we have control over escalation dominance. Uh, the Russians estimate China has 500 tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, by some estimates, the United States only has 500 for global alliance obligations. Uh, the United States has foregone the, the development of medium and intermediate range nuclear armed ballistic missiles, while that is a, a very uh, vigorous and growing concern on the part of the Chinese. Uh, we need to redress this balance and, and do it quickly. Uh, if, if we are going to have a, have a reasonable chance going forward in maintaining control over, over escalation. But I would also add that the, the fundamental problem today is not a military problem. The fundamental problem is not the number of Chinese weapons or China's strategy. The fundamental problem is political, right? We don't have a treaty alliance with Taiwan. We don't even recognize the Republic of China, which is Taiwan's official name. We don't even recognize it as a real country. Of course it is. I've lived in China and I've lived in Taiwan and I can tell you these are two different governments and they're two different countries. One is a communist country, a communist government with a very interesting economic model, and the other is a capitalist democratic country. But if we can't recognize that, and if we can't figure out how to move our political relationship, our diplomatic relationship with Taiwan in a more normal direction, if we can't even have a vision of one day having an embassy in Taipei recognizing this real democratic state that exists, how can we even start to think through going to nuclear war on behalf of this country that we don't even exist? That's the fundamental problem. And that's the biggest difference between the United States and Taiwan, that relationship, and our relationship with South Korea or Japan, for example, where no one questions our resolve and our willingness to escalate to the nuclear level if so required. With Taiwan, for political reasons, it's a very different situation and it's very complicated. And I would argue that if we had more vision politically about what we'd like in the future, 
other problems would fall into place as we started to think through this. I think it's also, not to belabor the point, but also important to mention that reports of the Obama administration considering a new policy of no first use of nuclear weapons would, in the Asian region, very quickly become destabilizing. The assurance of the American nuclear deterrent keeps many, so many corks in the bottle that taking, taking this away, it, even over, over some of these bottles, will impel some of our allies to consider very, very seriously their own nuclear deterrence and, and throw up in the air all kinds of calculations. Um, I'm trying to be selective here somehow so that we include everybody from all the roads. Good morning. My name is Dennis Nelson. I'm from Catholic University of America. Uh, I think the quote you're looking for is Carthago de Lenda Est, which is used by Cato the Elder. And I'm wondering if, in order to, to say Taiwan Servanda Est, that it must be protected, do you think that the Vietnamese feel the same way about the Chinese because of their historic animosity and that maybe Vietnam, I'm sorry, I'm addressing this question to all you gentlemen, that Vietnam would feel just as strongly about a defensive pact potentially with the United States, despite the fact that it's also a communist government, that it possibly has the same thing to, f to fear from China as Taiwan does? Well, no state in Asia has a longer record of animosity and yet ongoing practical relations with China than Vietnam does. Um, and I think you're, you're addressing the real politic uh, implications of better relations, better U.S.-Vietnam relations. Um, and I think that the Vietnamese are as interested in that relationship as we will let them be, and so, f so far because of human rights uh, issues, we haven't let that relationship develop. There's been, as you know, as well as I do, um, talks and visits and so on, but um, some, some think that continued Chinese bad behavior will make uh, the improvement of U.S.-Vietnamese relations a walkover, and that it will be, become so, such an obvious and apparent uh, benefit to all concerned that it will happen. We'll see. We'll see. I would say, yes, as, as achievable, yes, Vietnam will pursue advantages that it can derive from the United States, but uh, I don't foresee any major shift towards a formal alliance. Uh, it is uh, to Hanoi's credit, however, that uh, they are not relying too much on diplomacy for their security. They're investing in their own deterrent, and uh, the capabilities that they're acquiring are, are quite impressive and uh, do put the Chinese on notice. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakaya, a member of Reagan Foundations. Um, we used to talk about one China policy years and years ago. Um, 
I know I have a pretty good idea of that, but I want to hear your comments on that. It's kind of uh, putting our hands in the back, so to speak. So, thank you. I think this would be the key issue for the next administration, that right now our China policy is outdated. We made it in 1978-1979. Now, a lot has changed in Asia since that time. Taiwan is now a democracy, for example. At that time, the People's Republic of China was a useful partner in our broader global Cold War with the former Soviet Union. That threat no longer exists. It's now transformed into something different. So it may be advisable, and I would certainly advise, whoever comes into the White House next year within their first weeks to have a National Security Studies memorandum focusing on how we can bring the U.S.-China policy into line with objective reality, into what has transpired in Asia, because Asia looks, and our relationship with China and our relationship with Taiwan, uh, looks nothing like it did in 1977. And so I think we need to relook at that. I think uh, I agree entirely with Paul that we need uh, a real legitimate net assessment at the military level, but at the political level, and again, it's the political level where wars are made and where wars are prevented and deterred. I think we need to do this. I think we have time for one more question um, here in the first row. Hi, uh, Nadia Chow with the Liberty Times. I have a question for Ian and, and Richard. Uh, there's only a few months left. Uh, I think some people are still expecting Obama administration might have another round of arms sales to Taiwan. Do you think is it possible? If possible, you know, what kind of weapon system or capability that the administration should consider, you know, not in a dollar amount, but to the capability that Taiwan really needs? Thank you. Well, Nadia, as you know, of course it's possible. And of course, there are systems that are outstanding. The last announcement came on December 16th of last year. I think the very day that uh, I was last at the Hudson Institute and we were talking about this topic, or was it the same day or the next day? Yeah. Well, that package, which was impressive, and again, I, you can see it in the, the handout, all that was included after that four-year, three-month freeze, it left actually, and ironically, a lot out, which would include um, Seahawk helicopters for hunting submarines, the, the Romeos. Uh, it also left out Taiwan's outstanding requirement for program management assistance for their indigenous defense submarine. It also left out licensing for U.S. companies to provide Taiwan with technical support for their indigenous submarine program. Now, bear in mind, we actually promised 15 years ago or just under 15 years ago, to provide Taiwan with diesel-electric submarines. We failed to meet that commitment. We've met our other commitments, but we certainly have not met that one. Taiwan has now run out of patience. They realize they can wait no longer, and so now they've, they're trying to work on an indigenous build, and I think we, we ought to support that. And in addition and above all of those, there are just so many other capabilities that we can provide, everything from Abrams tanks for the Army to F new F-16s for the Air Force, uh, the list just goes on and on. Drone support, for example, for uh, electronic attack systems to suppress 
Chinese air defenses, new electronic warfare capabilities. And Rick knows, I would defer to him on uh, these hardware issues, so I'm sure he has a lot of other ideas. But these would be some of the, the low-hanging fruit, in my opinion. The question is, is the political will there? That's a, a big question. I, I, I would yeah. simply add, Nadia, that, uh, yes, uh, a, a, another arms sales package from the Obama administration would constitute uh, an enormous show of, of support and confidence for the new Psy administration. And uh, if, if that's possible, it should be welcomed. Uh, will it happen? Uh, I don't have any inside knowledge that it, that it will. And if it doesn't, well, that uh, then falls to the next administration to hopefully make uh, a strong statement early in its first term of support for Taiwan by offering such a robust package. And what, what Ian has mentioned in terms of what could be on the list is uh, very advisable. Uh, and uh, finally addressing the question of uh, support for the submarine program uh, must be addressed. That, that will be uh, the main judgment leveled at this next arms package and will be the measure of our seriousness in, in uh, our willingness to uh, support Taiwan's self-defense. I would just like to add the observation that whenever it comes, the next arms package is only going to be a difference in degree, not in kind. And I think what we've tried to make clear here is that we need the change in the whole context and structure of this relationship because, as Ian said so cogently, it's not the same Taiwan and China when this, this relationship was recast in the very late 1970s. So it's time to look at this from the ground up and not concentrate and spend all our energy on, as important as they are, the arms packages. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, uh, thank you, panel, uh, Richard, Ian, Paul, excellent presentations as usual. Um, thank you, uh, everybody who came out for this event. And I just want to make a point here that um, in the approach to the presidential election and then the time immediately following it, um, we're going to be holding monthly conferences on the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. So uh, watch your email spaces and other forms of communication, and we hope to see you again soon in the near future and thereafter as well. Thank you. Thank you.